starting off couldn't be easier. You have this handout in front of you. And we begin by reading article number one of the 39 articles of the Church of England, in the Church of England in Canada, in the ANAC form. There is a faith in the Holy Trinity, article one. There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body, parts, or passions, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. And in unity of this Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power and eternity, of one substance, power and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost of faith in the Holy Trinity, article number one. There it is. Sort of a watchword for this talk. I want to begin right off the bat, bat with a kind of watchword, a kind of controlling idea. It couldn't be simpler. From a theologian. It's not important his name. This is common to the whole ecumenical tradition of the Holy Catholic Church. Quote, Christian theology is biblical reasoning. Christian theology is biblical reasoning. It is an activity of the created intellect. There's our watchword for the morning. Simple, straightforward, I think you can't be more profound than that kind of statement. Christian theology is biblical reasoning. It is an activity of the created intellect. So the Christian confession is that God is Trinity. We hear that in Article 1. If you will, the, ver the language varies from a little bit, but not too much about these infinite mysteries. Eternal Father, eternally begetting, eternally begotten Son. The eternal spirit eternally proceeding from this mystery. That is God the Trinity. Strange language, we're not used to it. Eternal Father, eternally begetting, eternally begotten Son. The eternal spirit eternally proceeding from this mystery. One God, three persons. Each person fully and absolutely God. Each person is God. Absolutely, without qualification. So the article says, in that regard, one substance. Not a bit of God in each person. Each person is eternally God. Uh, the gospel reveals, the gospel reveals that God is Trinity. This is really important. The gospel reveals that God is Trinity. How God is Trinity is incomprehensible to the created mind. That God is, the gospel reveals that God is Trinity. God is Trinity. How God is Trinity 
is incomprehensible to the created mind, to the created intellect. Karl Barth, on this, uh, on this particular point, quotes St. Augustine. St. Augustine got it so right. If God, it is not comprehensible. If comprehensible, it is not God. So says the Bishop of Hippo uh, 1,500 years ago. God is, God makes himself communicable. You can talk about God. But uh, it's not to be mistaken with God being comprehensible. God can make himself knowable. We can talk about God, but that doesn't mean that we can comprehend God. There you have it. So the Church of Jesus Christ confesses the Trinity, as we all know. Article 1, the the reformers who did the, the prayer book, they have to start with the Trinity. Where else would you start? Church of Jesus Christ confesses the Trinity and learns, has learned over the centuries, to think and to speak in hopefully an appropriate and faithful manner about this revealed mystery. Yes. Incomprehension here, if you will, incomprehensibility calls for humility, but it does not call for silence. God wants us to know him and to speak about him. God loves us, wants to be in fellowship with us. We need to talk. So attention to language right off the bat is called for, isn't it? The article, you've got it in front of you again. You'll notice this. It sort of it dawns on us as we read it carefully. The article speaks of, for instance, the living God. This is beautiful language, isn't it? Our God is living, the living God. Uh, everlasting, the article says. It speaks of power, of wisdom. It speaks of goodness. This God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. This language is in Article 1. That is obviously Bible language. Usually Bible language is um, concrete. Um, sometimes it's mythological. I told me the other day, uh, you know, the Psalter of God uh, gets angry and uh, uh, fire and brimstone come from his nostrils. He's spoken of like uh, in, in that concrete, quote, mythological language. Concrete mythology, it's usually frequently visual, very visual pictures of God, very earthy, if you will. Uh, sometimes it could be referred to, for good or for ill, it's always commonsensical at, that, at one level. Thank goodness it is. God speaks to us in a commonsensical language that we can understand. That is Bible vocabulary, Bible language is in, is in article, one, uh, article number one. We'll call that, in fact, for today, language number one. Language number one. We also hear in this article, of course, uh, another kind of vocabulary, another kind of language, which obviously just feels different, doesn't it? Um, things like without body, without parts, without passions. And we hear a, a, a further, a something about a unity of this Godhead. And then three persons, one substance. Don't recall Paul ever saying that to the church at Rome. Never talk like that. That is not, we can say for sure, that is not Bible language as, as, a, as a rule. That's not Bible language. It is obviously somewhat abstract. 
it is somewhat analytical. It is analytical. At its best, it seems to me, it seeks pure conception. There's something beautiful about a pure conception. It sort of sets aside metaphor, sets aside pictures. Thomas Torrance talks about kind of language that seeks out pure, pure conception. God is worthy of that at times. Uh, that's the kind of language you uh, find here. Again, it's not Bible language. It's abstract. It's analytical. It is very, very, very rare in the Bible. It's sometimes there. I would say it's sometimes sort of there's an approach to it in the Bible. The Bible usually presents precision by way of extended observation. You get a lot of talk about God that begins to build up precise ideas about God, what is definitely not to be said about God, what are good things to be said about God. But here we have, in article number one, obviously a kind of abstract, uh, analytical language. For today, we're going to call that language number two. Article one has Bible language in it, has abstract uh, language in it. I find it wonderful. I hope you do, too. I know we're off to a fast start here today. I find it just wonderful. I know you do, too. Just to think about God. I hope that's true for you. Just to think about God is good. Um, it, this is impossible, but in a measure, to just put ourselves and our concerns questions of relevance aside and just think about God. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. To think with some effort, to think worthily about what one theologian calls God, the mystery of the world. My favorite thing outside of words, outside of scripture, to simply uh, uh, to talk of God is from Karl Barth. Bart calls God famously, he who loves in freedom. That's how Bart thinks about God. He who loves in freedom. That's God. He who loves in freedom. Indeed, Bible approaches, we say, abstract language sometimes. The Bible says, in him we live and move and have our being. We have our being today because God wills us to have it. In him we live and move and have our being. We don't command ourselves to exist. God does. You see, the creed, um, Article 1, rather, speaks of this. So I want to jump right into, uh, let's go into article number one just for a while, forgetting about ourselves, just thinking about God. And we're going to start off with a bit of language number two, the abstract stuff, the analytical stuff. Theologian says it very simply. I forget the theologians I've been I'm quoting here often. They've been reading about the Trinity all summer. I think it's George Hunsinger, a great scholar in the United States. God's absolute being, he says, God's absolute being is his eternal reality as the Trinity. Again, that's very simple and straightforward. God's absolute being is his eternal reality as the Trinity. But here we jump into language number two stuff with some difficulty. But it's a delight to think about God along these lines. 
and it's always open to further elucidation. We engage the whole Christian tradition of thinking about God when we think about the Trinity. God's absolute will, his absolute being again, is his eternal reality as the Trinity. But we may say about this God, and we'll see why in a moment, and here's language number two stuff for sure, this God has what has been called, and may be called, a contingent will. God is absolute being, but God also has what may be called a contingent will. God, the creed, oh, so I keep calling it the creed, excuse me, Article 1, Article 1 along with the creed, Article 1 reminds us that God, if you will, became a creator. Article 1 says, the language is, the maker and preserver of all things visible and invisible. Just a footnote there. I, didn't, was, I think, I think the, the whole tradition talks about God as the creator of the creeds do too. God created everything that's invisible. The Greek world, our world too, thinks that there's something out there called fate. Infinite, powerful. And some people may secretly think that our God is subject to fate. He's not. God created everything that's invisible. There is no fate, really. God's sovereign will rules over all things. The, create, the maker and preserver of all things visible and invisible. You see here that God has always been a father begetting a son. But God was not always a creator. God became a creator. In his sovereign freedom, he contingently said, I will create that which is other than myself. He did not have to. In freedom, he created. God became a creator. So we can talk about God having a contingent will. In freedom, like we, I decided to create something other than himself. Amazing. God has always been father. He has not always been a creator. He became a creator. Language number two stuff does sort of take you into interesting sort of assertions about God. There it is. Uh, further attempts to unfold this in language number two may go something like this. Again, we're in the language of number two, so you have to uh, be patient with that kind of language. We can say this, with the tradition, God constitutes himself as Trinity eternally. In his freedom, he constitutes himself as Trinity eternally. God doesn't find himself to be a Trinity. He constitutes himself in freedom to be the Trinity eternally. That is amazing. God, otherwise, he determines himself as a creator. Get the distinction. Our God is determined as Trinity. He constitutes himself to be a creator. Yes, that's amazing. We're going to say goodbye to language number two uh, because it's, it is sort of different, rarefied. It's where does this take us? But we can also say this on the basis of this Trinitarian thought. It's throughout the tradition. But this is amazing. 
In our God, therefore, we now know this because of God the Trinity and God the Creator. Apparently, in our God, what we call simultaneity and sequence are not exclusive to one another. God is really different than we are. One of the benefits of Trinitarian thought is just simply you keep having, I hope it's in a moment, moments of adoration and wonder. How different God is from us. And part of our adoration of God, our wonder at Him, is that simple realized recognition. It's a feeling. I remember I said, I want to forget about myself and just think about God. But of course, it's really impossible. Every now and again, it just comes back on you as you think about God. God is really different than I am. And that's a wondrous recognition. He means us to know this. God, it's as if God says to us all the time, I'm really different than you. I'm God. You're a creature. In God, simultaneity, that's a certain sense his eternity. And what follows in God's mysterious being as sequence, again, are not exclusive. As one theologian says it, I think, very, a bit provocatively, but wondrously. To say, quote, God is eternal is to say that God has and is time himself. God is himself time. God has a history within himself. He's eternally Trinity, says Article 1. But he became the sequence, the maker of heaven and earth. How strange is our God. How very strange. But the church, again, speaks about Trinity. Because, and now a little break from language number two, uh, just at, at random I, gr- I grab these, and that's a bad way to do it, but why not? It's in, it's, hopefully our, our minds have enough scripture in them that we can say God speaks about Trinity because, well, Paul said to Titus, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior has appeared. The goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, has appeared. Appeared. He's visible now. God and his goodness and his loving kindness made it himself visible. There's the beginning of uh, where Trinitarian uh, thought begins. It's just the church staring and staring and staring and staring at Scripture and saying, what does it tell us about what the word God means. What does the word God mean? The word famously with God, says John's prologue, is God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Lived, of course, in Israel, the chosen scene for his appearing. God is God, And here's a mystery. There's a something with God, and that with God is God, says John's prologue completely clearly. 
Naming John's prologue is one of the places in scripture where a bit of analytical language shows up. There are approaches to it, at least in Holy Scripture. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's God, and there's with God. And with God is also God. God, God. That's amazing. The, the Word with God is God. That's amazing. The form of God, Paul says to the Philippians, The form of God emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Isn't that amazing? God emptied himself and took the form of a servant. God can do that. He can empty himself and take the form of a servant, but remain God at the same time. Didn't stop being God when he did that. There it is, the form of God. The church baptizes in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Is it Romans uh, 8, you find a beautiful, um, the spirit of him who raised Jesus, Paul says in Romans 8, 11. The spirit of him who raised Jesus. A little Trinitarian moment in Romans 8. God the spirit, who raised him? God the the Father of Jesus raised Jesus. The spirit of him who raised Jesus. Amazing stuff. The article, again, Trinity thought arises out of long, difficult engagement with all of Scripture. The church looks at all of Scripture and says, what is it telling us the word God means? And it says it's telling us strangely that God is Trinity. The article speaks again, uh, speaking with uh, using language number one there. I hope you keep looking at the article as I talk away here. The article speaks of God the Trinity as infinite in power. That's something less abstract, very emotional. and I find it's just beautiful language. Think uh, that God is infinite in power, wisdom, and goodness. The tradition, if I call it that over and over again, calls such glories that belong to God the Trinity quite reasonably. These are glories that belong to God that are communicable. We can understand that in a pretty straightforward uh, manner. In Christ, we believe they were supremely present, these wonderful glories, wisdom, goodness, a power. But each of us, of course, in a measure possesses each of these things, perhaps in a woefully small measure, but some form or trace of these things are in all humans. Heaven, if you will, gifts, gifts, gives to creatures some wisdom, some goodness, some power. We, we share in these communicable attributes. The state of these gifts before and after the mystery of iniquity enters the creation is much disputed in the Christian tradition. Some Christian traditions see us utterly fallen. You know, the famous Calvinist language. What is it? We are uh, beyond, beyond retrieval. Total depravity. And other traditions say, well, let's back off from that a bit. We still bear God's image. There are traces of these communicable gifts in us. That's a reasonable and good conversation for Christians to have. But did St. Augustine called pagans virtues? He called them magnificent vices or something. That we see goodness, but everything's distorted. 
I think Pascal got it perfectly correct when he calls he calls we humans glorious ruins. I think that's I love that from Pascal. Seems to just capture so much of Scripture, so much of just who we are. We are glorious. God created us. He sustains us. He has a future for us. We are glorious. But we have been ruined by sin. A glorious ruin. In the literary tradition, just off the top of my head, you know, famously, uh, Milton presents Satan at times as quite beautiful. Because uh, Milton remembers that the evil one used to be an archangel, uh, an angel of light. A naive people forgetting the Christian tradition, forgetting the Bible, then come along, stupid, uh, and say, oh, Milton must have really liked the evil one. He must have been one of his party because he shows him to be, you know, glorious. Well, that just is a witness in the literary tradition of a, a culture forgetting scripture, forgetting the Christian tradition. You can be glorious, but also ruined. That's how the, Milton presents the evil one in uh, Paradise Lost. We are... Uh, glorious ruins. We are, all of us are not omnipotent. But God will, through his spirit, communicate to us a measure of power. So power is a communicable attribute of God the Trinity. God is omnipotent, but he can give to creatures his a measure of power. We'll never be omnipotent. Some, I think probably someone maybe in the White House could say that to Donald Trump. You know, we're not omnipotent, but we, can, we have a measure of power given to us by our Creator. These, uh, these distinctions are, I know, um, some people quite reasonably find them just, uh, um, they're perplexing, and they uh, would just rather not bother with this kind of uh, approach to talking about God. But on the other hand, I'm sure, I hope you've had this experience. They can be, for some people, they have been for me, they kind of bring you a kind of intellectual comfort because they bring a kind of, a kind of beginning of understanding of why the tradition says various things about God. For instance, it is a bit strange, isn't it, when we hear in Article 1 that God, uh, God is without, the Trinity is without body, uh, without parts, Without this is most uh, controversial for some. Some people are, are real bothered. Reasonably enough, God is says Article One without passions. No passions in God says Article Number One. Um, God is not the, without body and without parts is usually not too much of a problem for us. But it is. It takes us into language Number Two kind of issues, doesn't it? God is not to be thought of. This came up last week a bit in conversation with Jim Packers. He was talking about God's eternity. God is not to be thought of as extended in space. You know? And therefore, he'd have there be a part of God there and another part of God over there. God is not to be thought of that way. If we're going to be careful with our imaginations and our thinking. God is not extended in space. He doesn't have parts. Again, part of God there, another part of God all over there. If you will, here is another area where you think, isn't God unthinkable in one sense? All of God, the tradition teaches us over and over, all of God is everywhere. 
That's a strange thing. How, how different God is than we are. Uh, one famous way of putting this may come from a pagan source for all I know, but I, it's, I think Augustine uh, approves of this kind of saying, so does Pascal. Other people in the medieval tradition will, will say this kind of thing. God is a circle with center everywhere. Circumference, circumference nowhere. God is a circle, center everywhere. Circumference nowhere. That's an interesting thought. If you ever had someone say to you, usually people trying to give you the gears because you're religious or you're a Christian, eh, why would God be interested in you know me? Why would God be interested in little things, uh, particular things? Isn't God? Shouldn't God be just looking at the big picture? Why would God be concerned about particular little things? Well, because God is everywhere. All of God can be present to you and be present to everybody else. To big issues, to small issues, God is everywhere. God is a circle, center everywhere, circumference nowhere. God really is different than we are. Well say. Even better than that, sometimes that may, might seem to make God a bit passive. He's, he's just there. I find John Webster's simple statement about God here very moving. He, he says, God presents himself in freedom. God always presents himself in freedom. That's who God is. Pantheists, you see, don't believe that. They imagine that God is everywhere and that they will necessarily find God when they look for him anywhere. They'll, God will, because of God's being, they'll, they'll find him. He'll have to be findable. Well, God will be everywhere, you see, but the point being from Mr. Webster that God presents himself in his freedom to you. He's not at your command. Present yourself, God, I'm looking for you. God will present himself, but he presents himself in freedom. Mr. Senner was going to do his doctoral work at St. Andrews with John Webster, but Mr. Webster passed away in, in his 60th year, so sad. Wonderful Christian theologian. Pantheus again thinks, thinks God thinks that God must be necessarily there. No, the Trinity is free. As we saw earlier, the, the, the Trinity is so free, it was free even to just become a creator one day, if we can say one day. Became a creator. I will give the gift of existence to others, the Trinity decided. Overflowing with love and kindness and generosity. But what about, again, what about this God without passions? This, again, as we say, is a problem for some. And not unreasonably, it's a bit offensive. God has no passions. Makes them seem unreal and weird. Oliver O'Donovan, I haven't read, read I haven't, um, some of the best books have great titles. I haven't read the, this yet. I want to someday. Oliver O'Donovan has written a book about the articles. I love the title. The, the 39 Articles is the title of this book. A Conversation with Tudor Christianity. Ah, that's interesting. The articles do come from Tudor Christianity, which reminds us, it gives us a simple reminder that doctrine unfolds in history. So when some people hear that God's without passions, there is a little bit of a worry. Reasonably enough, has a mere terrifying absolute found its way into Trinitarian thought? Maybe 
uh, uh, Aristotle's famous unmoved mover has shown up, which would distort perhaps the biblical presentation of what the word God means. The tradition wisely worries about things like this, finds itself compromised a bit with thought outside of scripture, and that's why there's you know, there's another kind of Trinitarian thought comes along and says, wait a minute, we don't like quite where that's going, and there it unfolds. Maybe Aristotle's unmoved mover is here, because Aristotle's unmoved mover would not have passions, would he? No, to, no, he's above passions. What about the gospel, what about the God of Israel speaking through Hosea the prophet, famously a God, you remember that book where God agonizes over his people's wayward ways. Is that a God without passions? The scriptures show God passionately loving his people even as they are wayward. And he wishes to bring them back. Well, language number two here may help. I must race, move along here. We're running out of time. Remember, from the beginning, God has, on one view of Trinitarian thought, God has absolute perfections. And he has also... Uh, become a God of contingent perfections. So he is eternally, I'm repeating myself, eternally Father, Son, and Spirit, but he became a creator. He has this contingent perfection where God became a creator and that's one of his glories. So here's the kind of assertion that answers the passions in God thing uh, for sake of time. The impassable sovereign God that is without passions so constituting himself, as we said earlier, he constitutes himself as the eternal God. Nothing impinges upon him. There's nothing there to impinge upon him. Nothing conditions God. But this God determines himself, doesn't constitute himself, but determines himself to become an obedient incarnate son and become, in fact, the suffering servant that Isaiah the prophet said was coming into the world. The second person of the Trinity incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth with the mystery of Jesus of Nazareth becomes a suffering servant. He emptied himself, became a suffering servant without ceasing to be God, the impassable God. The Trinity without passions is if you will, divinely free. He's not Aristotle's unmoved mover. He's divinely free. He's the God who nothing conditions himself, uh, him, but he's free to save. He's free to take upon himself a passionate life. What a strange God. He can be both passionless, but out of his free love and passionlessness, he becomes a suffering God in the mystery of Jesus Christ. We are not to think of God as a prisoner. Here's one of the most radical thoughts you can think. You just deal with this as you will. It's so I think Karl Barth says this. We are not to think of God as a prisoner of his own attributes. I'm passionless. Sorry, I can't help you in your sin, creatures. No, I'm passionless. But I'm free to enter into your dilemmas and take your passionate, uh, horrible situation down upon myself. God can do that. He's without passions. But his contingent will 
might be to take upon himself the sin of the world and even to cry out to himself, why have you forsaken me? Oh, we worship a very strange God who's other than we are. He can do this. We cannot do things like this. The impassibly sovereign one is able to achieve what he wills through the Son's suffering, says Colin Gunton. He's the lecture at Regent College. died a few years ago. The impassibly sovereign one is able to achieve what he wills through the Son's suffering. In some sense, God may appear as his opposite. Whereas, isn't our God strange? God the Trinity opens up mysteries about God. That God is this way, Scripture reveals. How God could be this way is beyond the created intellect. And we learn adoration, intellectual adoration, if you will, by thinking such thoughts. Um, the Trinity's attributes, God has, again, absolute perfections that are simply revealed as there in the mystery of God's freedom. But God, at the same time, has contingent perfections, contingent uh, uh, absolutes, no, contingent perfections which God may also reveal to us. Absolute perfections, contingent perfections. How, again, this could be is incomprehensible to the created mind. Christian theology, again, is biblical reasoning. God, running out of time. It is an activity of the created uh, intellect. Uh, again, I spent some time reading about the Trinity this summer. That's why Alexander said, say something in September, I thought, sort of fresh in my mind, I'll do it. Reminded again of how strange our God is. God is other than we are. But Trinity thought is biblical reasoning or comes from the Bible because God the Trinity has repeated himself in our world, if you will. The tradition speaks of God imminent to himself but then this God who's imminent to himself did a work for our salvation in the world there's eternity, here's our world this is usually a magician called the economic trinity we know that God is like this here because the trinity repeated himself down here if you will the gospel is the trinity working for us and therefore the tradition knows this is who God is. God is Father. God is Son. God is Spirit. That's why the, the creeds, our liturgies, our hymnody all says that one way or another over and over again. God the Trinity here uh, has revealed himself to us here and therefore we know that's what God is really like. It was... Um, it was at, at work here, the Trinity comes to us in our dark and alienated and fragile and sinful world. It was into, Karl Barth loves to talk about this, it, God came to us in our far country. God the Father sent the Son, becoming incarnate, and that forever. Behold, the great Creator takes himself a house of clay, a 
robe of human flesh he takes, which he will wear for a forever. God, Bart says, has decided not to be God without us. He's decided to love us that much. He's taken humanity up into his own life in the Trinity. The second person is incarnate. Jesus, when he returns, we're going to see a Jewish rabbi in eternal glory, the second person of the Trinity, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, through whom all things were created, says the prologue. That's our Jesus. That's him. It was into a far country again that God the Father sent the Son. And the Spirit of the Son, as we hear in that little Romans 8 verse 11 moment, reveals to us the Son. As the tradition likes to say, only God can reveal God. Only God reveals God, truths about God. So, thinking the Trinity, thinking God's thoughts after him, if you will, in the Bible. Here, think about me this way. The whole Christian tradition is there. God is, as Article 1 says, he's eternal. God is an immensity. And it is this uh, immensity which comes to us as Charles Hodge, a very hard-to-read theologian from the 19th century at Princeton. He calls the doctrine of God's immensity an intensive perfection. It's not a, God is not a mere immensity. It's intensive perfection. That's why God acts for us in Mary. The second person of the Trinity came and lived in Mary's womb. On the cross, he dies for the world. He is exiting an empty tomb for us. This is God's actions for us. God the Trinity in this our far country. This is the God... Uh, who did this for us. Uh, I must close. It thinks us to think Trinity, as in John Webster's words, into uh, a vision of intellectual selfhood, he calls it. Here's a new world to think yourself into. This is the world that God would have us think ourselves into, a new intellectual selfhood uses that uh, phrase uh, when he became the Regius Professor of Theology at Oxford uh, the successor to Rowan Williams Webster's very orthodox he gives a lecture in which he says why does Oxford have a theologian in its midst aren't we sort of anachronisms what are we doing here and in his inaugural address he brilliantly talks about A university is a place where different visions of the intellectual self are on display. We have an enlightenment vision of the intellectual self. The Christian intellectual self is different. And on a university campus, they should have the ability to speak to one another. That's how uh, John Webster, now it's saying, uh, the late John Webster, speaks to the modern world about, well, let's talk about different forms of the intellectual self. The Christian intellectual self is its own self. It's distinct. A lot of what Article 1 says, we know children of the Enlightenment who are articulate and thoughtful, they call that's gibberish. Father eternally begetting a son, a spirit proceeding. That's the kind of thinking that a Voltaire and all the children of the Enlightenment say, away with this mystery. 
but the Christian church is a new world where a new intellectual selfhood is born and we know God is this mystery of the Trinity. There it is. Um, unique to the Christian faith is the doctrine of the Trinity. If the church gets much, much worse, much more compromised by our culture, I wonder if the day's coming when major denominations will start to archive the doctrine of the Trinity because it really makes us different than uh, others amongst us. The Trinity teaches us, closing, the Trinity teaches us to think the Trinity. The Trinity, again, is the gospel's God. It's by staring long and hard at the scriptures as a whole, the New Testament in particular, that we find out that the gospel's God is the mystery of Trinity. By his own will, says James, James 1, uh, James 1, verse 18, a verse which Karl Barth, one of my favorites, just loves. By his own will, he brought us forth. The older versions say that by his own will, he has begotten us by the word of truth. The Trinity, says Barth, whenever we know it, we are rather begotten by it. God is speaking this through his spirit into us into his beloved people of the church. Think of me this way, God says. I am Trinity. I am Father, eternally begetting Son. Son, eternally begotten. Proceeding is the Spirit. I give you the Spirit to teach you how to think, to renew your mind. And get to know the Trinity a bit in this world because in eternity, I suspect we're going to spend forever uh, exploring this mystery how this could be uh, there it is uh, wonderful topic I know a lot of that is um, uh, strange a bit odd people who have too much time in their hands in the summer like me and read a few books about the Trinity but uh, I think it's wonderful it's uh, I find it healing to learn that there's a way of thinking which I would call it an uh, uh, a thinking into adoration that's what trinity thought is this is god this way what infinitely adorable that god is this way that we know he's this way um amen let me say a word of prayer it's five to ten we'll see if we have time uh lord thank you for your revelation of yourself that you are a father who creates a son who reconciles a spirit who perfects and we will spend now and forever thinking about this mystery we thank you lord for these truths uh, where they're in air lord we know they're so often in air correct them and where they are have any good in them may, may they bless our hearts and souls today amen